Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. To commemorate the 20th anniversary of September 11th, we are proud to present to you a special Remembering 9-11 episode with guest host Jane Bunker, director of Cornell University Press. Jane will be interviewing two Cornell authors whose recent books directly address the events and the aftermath of the September 11th tragedy. Jessica Dulong, author of Saved at the Seawall, Stories from the September 11 Boatlift, and Larry Kerwin, author of Rockaway Blue, a novel, both published under our Three Hills imprint. Jane Bunker has been serving as director since March of 2020 and is the first woman to lead Cornell University Press. She was previously the director of Northwestern University Press and associate director and editor-in-chief at the State University of New York Press. Jane holds a BA in philosophy from St. Norbert College and an MA in philosophy from Fordham University. Jessica DeLong is a journalist, historian, book collaborator, and ghostwriter, as well as chief engineer, emerita, of the retired 1931 New York City fireboat John J. Harvey. Her first book, My River Chronicles, won an American Society of Journalists and Authors Outstanding Book Award for Memoir. Her work has appeared in Rolling Stone, CNN.com, Newsweek International, Psychology Today, Huffington Post, Newsday, and Maritime Reporter and Engineering News. Jessica appears in Spike Lee's HBO docuseries, NYC Epicenters, 9-11 to 2021 and a half, and in cartoon form in Myra Coleman's picture book, Fireboat, The Heroic Adventures of the John J. Harvey. Larry Kerwin was the leader of the New York-based Irish political rock band Black 47 for 25 years. He is author of five previous books, including Liverpool Fantasy, Rock in the Bronx, and Green Suede Shoes, and 19 plays and musicals, including Paradise Square, which will open on Broadway March 22, 2022. He is currently working on a stage version of The Informer and Iraqi Rose, a musical about the Iraq War. Kerwin also hosts Celtic Crush, a popular radio show on Sirius XM, and writes a column for the Irish Echo. Hello, Jane, Jessica, and Larry. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. We're so happy to have you join us for this special episode that's tied to the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Jane will be our special guest host uh, for this discussion, and so I turn the microphone over to you, Jane. Thank you so much, Jonathan. I'm really happy to be here and to have the opportunity to speak with uh, Jessica and Larry today. Thank you for making the time to speak with us as we near this really important anniversary. Um, And I also would like to give a shout out to my colleague, Michael McGandy, who worked with you both on your books. Um, I was really interested to see when I was coming on board last year as uh, the new director of the press that he had planned two books uh, on 9-11 during this season, one fiction and one non. And it's really interesting to look at the events of of September 11 from both of these vantage points. So um, I think we we can acknowledge we'll be writing and reading and discussing this event forever. Uh, And I have so many questions for both of you, but I'm going to try to limit myself to maybe three. If if you'd like to both 
begin by talking a little bit about how 9-11 impacted you personally and how that informed uh, the books that you both wrote. And Jessica, would you like to start us off? So I'm a marine engineer. I served for two decades as um, engineer aboard retired New York City fireboat John J. Harvey. And uh, the boat, while it was not an active duty vessel on September 11th, it was called back into service to pump completely necessary uh, river water to firefighters, to land-based crews. Um, When the towers uh, came down, the fire hydrants were obscured by debris and rubble and the water mains were were shattered. And um, so I served at Ground Zero for four days as a marine engineer. And so it's always hard for me to, to describe when the beginning of this reporting started for me, um, because it, it really started in a very informal way with me just as a writer, carrying a notebook around with me writing things down on site, um, just for no clear purpose, except that I hope to one day make sense of, of what was happening around us. So that service is both what made me feel a deep responsibility to tell the story of the maritime evacuation of nearly half a million people from Manhattan on September 11th. I felt a responsibility to my community. Um, I felt a responsibility to bear witness um, to these remarkable choices that people made time and time again to, to help one another. Similarly, I was really hesitant to dive into writing a book about this topic because it, I still carry the, the psychological effects of my service down there. And um, so it's meant that for, for two decades, I've still been swimming in these same stories. Um, and so what makes it worth it is the ability to draw attention to the reality that we are so much more than our constrained, formulated hero narratives, our our idea that people divide into two categories, heroes and everybody else, because really what we saw in full force that day was that so many people time and time again put themselves and their concern for their well-being aside so that they could help other people. And it's really, that is the remarkable story that day. Thank you so much. I really appreciated that part in your book where you talk about look to the helpers and, and that's where some sort of saving grace comes in. Larry, what about you? How did the effects of 911 play into your writing this novel? Well, I live just above the area. I live just above Canal Street. So I heard the plane coming over and it, I actually banged my head onto the table because I thought it was going to hit our building. And then I went upstairs and saw this incredible sight of a huge plane embedded in the North Tower. Uh, and I went down that day straight away, but I only got about eight blocks down and then the smoke and the dust and I realized this is not a good place to be and turned back and went around. But as regards writing the book, that happened the following Saturday night because Black 47 was the house band of New York City at the time and had an enormous following, particularly with cops and firemen and first responders and a lot of young Irish-American financials, as we call them, uh, many of whom had gone to college for the first time and uh, uh, in their families and were working down there. So we lost a lot of people. And um, because of the nature of the band, when we weren't on tour, we would play in 
a regular uh, place every Saturday night we were in New York and it happened to be Connolly's on 45th Street. So we put out the word that we would go back in the, uh, the following Saturday night because the, uh, everybody was laying low in New York and people weren't coming in and the streets were deserted. So we said, we'll be in Connolly's and come on up. And of course, Black 47 fans came, but the, the great majority of people who came were the first responders who were actually down in the pit, as we call it then. And for about four or five weeks, the strange phenomenon happened that, and think back to it, we didn't know who was alive and who was dead for the most part early on. So whenever the door would open, everyone would turn around and... Uh, when someone would walk through, everyone with this audible sigh of, you know, relief. John or Mary had made it, you know, and that that kept happening for about four or five weeks. And I began to think, yeah, but how about Billy or Michelle? They're not coming back. And I got this this need to write the story of the regular people. Because already I could feel what was happening. The politicians were taking it over and were going to use it. And they did use it to um, go to war in Iraq. And a lot of our fans, because we had our basic uh, support group were working class and lower middle class people. And many of those young people joined up because they wanted to do some kind of service for their country. And the next thing I know, two years later, they're in Baghdad, on the way to Baghdad, and being shot at. So we were hearing the stories of that uh, straight away, too. So I wanted to capture what it was like for the regular people of New York. And uh, I tried it in different ways, tried it with an album called New York Town for Black 47. Then I put it into a playwright form because I am a playwright and that was produced, but I couldn't, I couldn't get into their heads in that form. And I realized it would have to be a novel because you'd have to find out what the characters were thinking. And that's what Rockaway Blue is all about. Thank you, Larry. It's almost as if you anticipated my next question, which is, I was going to ask about the fact that both of the books explore this tragedy through the lens of ordinary working class people doing what, you know, end up being truly extraordinary things. And I was curious about why you took that approach and why it's so powerful. And I think you, you've just explained that perfectly in the case of Rockaway Blue. Good. And I'm also, as, as I'm listening to you both, I'm struck by the fact that I'm speaking to, you know, a, a rock and roll star and an author and playwright and, and, you know, an engineer of a New York City fireboat. It's, it's extraordinary and also a very accomplished writer as well, of course, Jessica. And, you know, how everybody has a story. Everybody's got their perspective on what happened that day. We all lived through it in a particular way. You both were much, much closer than I. I was actually up the Hudson a couple of hours in Albany, New York that day, um, but it was the same weather. Remember that blue sky? Everybody remembers that blue sky that day. And now it's 20 years since the incident. And I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about how the people in your books have healed, if 
they have healed and how they haven't uh, in the latter case. And, you know, extrapolate perhaps from that outward to the nation as a whole. I'm personally struck by the similarities between that historical time period and now where we're living through the global pandemic. There is incredible collective trauma and grief. And it strikes me as a, as a really similar time period where we are really in need of healing and connection and the transcendence that art can offer us. And I realize I didn't really ask a question. <laughs> Larry, you look like you've got something to say. 9-11 changed America. We became a fearful people after it. I often think that, uh, I don't think it's a, a huge change, you know, in that we weren't asked to do anything. I mean, as Jessica says, so many people did do something, but for instance, Black 47 was really lucky in that we were able to do whatever we wanted to. We didn't need to, um, we didn't need permission from anyone, but so many bands and artists wanted to contribute and they were stymied. There was nothing anyone could do. But apart from that, it was the country wasn't asked to do anything. We would have done anything at that period. We would have gone into poor areas and raised the level of education. We would have donated money to different things. But, you know, the, the powers that be wanted everything to go along the same. And I have nothing but disgust for the politicians and the states people at that point. They, they missed this huge opportunity to, to change America. And America needs a lot of changing. And my guess is it's not happening at this point with the pandemic either. You know, people can't even take the, the simple step of getting vaccinated. And for people are not thinking in terms of the common good because politicians see a way of keeping us separate and of staying in power because of that. And it's strange, I'm interested to get Jessica's view on this, but it just seems that we're heading down the same track again as we did after 9-11. Yeah, I remember President Bush famously saying that we just needed to go shopping. I, I mean, there is, one, there is one guy who knew how to get out. He wrecked the world, he wrecked the Middle East. He didn't do very much for the US. And he, I think, realized it and got his butt down to Texas, got on his farm and stayed down there and escaped the, you know, the reckoning that should have happened to him. But that's, that's my take on it. Yeah. What do you think? And if I may say, I, I was really struck in your book, Jessica, by the fact that I'm pretty sure, I could be wrong, I'm pretty sure you don't mention Bush's name, possibly not Giuliani's name. Your focus is so lasered in on uh, the people who were getting the boats to the seawall to see how many people they could get off Manhattan Island. It, it was entirely focused on 
the people who needed saving and the people who showed up to do it. Well, the, the mention of um, uh, Giuliani's name comes because he's, he's the mayor and he's at a certain point, you know, puts out an order that anyone who can go north should go north, right? So point of information. It's, uh, it's included as point of information um, because um, it was uh, then President Bush's arrival that actually stalled us in, um, in place because the harbor shut down for security reasons. And there was a whole uh, group of uh, largely firefighters, but first responders who were stuck waiting on the back of a tugboat, just wanting to go to New Jersey. And they had to wait until um, President Bush arrived and then departed. It is very easy for us to continue down this road of division um, where we, we categorize people and we look at people with the sort of tight lens focus of a small narrative of, of who we can be and how we can be. And there are plenty of examples in, in history, uh, in New York and everywhere all over the world of terrible things that people do and terrible things that happen. And what does not get enough real estate in our words, in our images, in our um, art, in our um, commenta commentators discussing are the ways that we come together. And Rebecca Solnit has a beautiful book um, a, that collects all of these examples, um, Paradise Built in Hell. And she looks throughout history at all of these stories that actually took place and the ways that disasters happened and people came together. People came together who were not trained to do so, who didn't necessarily have special equipment or a special sort of um, uh, professional obligation to do this. And those examples do not get enough attention, do not get enough airtime. And um, I think there are some good reasons that Larry mentioned about why those divisions are, are important to maintain for certain, certain of us. Um, but we all lose. We all lose when we have this limited sense of our human potential doesn't serve any of us. And so the more that we can draw attention to the incredible selflessness and the choices that people made over and over again to help people, even when, and it's hard to bring ourselves back to those that morning and, and those, those minutes that crept by and raced by sort of all at the same time in the weird way that time gets mangled um, when we're in uh, crisis situations. We didn't know if, if the, the first plane was the beginning or the end. We didn't know if the second plane, we didn't know that the tower, it just kept getting worse. So it seemed that it was this you know, arrow of trajectory of, of worse and worse and worse. And the, the mariners continued to turn their boats around. They would drop off passengers on safe shores in New Jersey, in Brooklyn, elsewhere. Staten Island, and they turned their boats around and they headed straight to the island on fire without knowing what was gonna happen next. Many times they had to navigate their boats only with radar because the smoke and dust and debris was in the air was just choking. And people have paid the price. I mean, you asked earlier about healing and people paid the price psychologically and that's very hard to put metrics on. And I certainly don't wanna speak for others and whether they've healed or not. I think that's a moving target moving targets, probably not the best analogy to use in that setting, but you see what I'm saying. But people, um, mariners have gotten sick and died for making that choice over and over again. And just one other point on this is that even though I think it's important 
And when, when the Mariners I spoke with sort of took pause and thought it through, they recognized that they made choices in those moments. They, they, they could look back and say, okay, I guess I could have done something different. But at the time, there was no something different that they were ever going to do. It was just a given because this is what you do when you have the tools and the skill set and the wherewithal and the equipment and the ability to help. And you see someone standing at the seawall or jumping into the river because they think they are somehow going to swim to New Jersey and they're that desperate to get away from the island. You rescue them. That's just what we do. And that piece of who we are needs more attention, needs more highlighting. And right now, especially in the pandemic, it's really important. We're such a divided nation right now. And yet you see neighbor helping neighbor over and over again. And um, those are stories that need more daylight. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and as you were speaking and going through, you know, first plane hit and we didn't know if it was the beginning or the end and it kept getting worse. That, that was done so effectively, the way the narrative sort of unfolds in your book. Um, Frankly, when I opened it up and looked at the timeline in the front matter, I just started reading it and I, I, I started to cry and I had to shut the book. And this was a couple of weeks ago when I was getting ready for this. I had no idea it would be so affecting still. I was sitting with my husband and he said, what's the matter with you? And I just held up the book and handed it to him. And he said, really? And I, I said, you know, this, this is, this is a tender time, you know, it's everything is, uh, everything is painful right now on some level. And the hope, you know, you mentioned Rebecca Solnit. She's one of the things that's been helping me get through, you know, the, the focus on the fact that we show up for one another and we do what's needed. And, People don't need to tell us. It just happens over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that I was really struck by in the Saved by the Seawall is you don't really think about the fact that the waterfront in Manhattan is no longer structured for sea vessels to come up and get human beings on and off of boats. And so those scenes of cutting through railings and setting up uh, gangplanks and what happened at Pier 63 was really really fascinating. And uh, I was grateful to have a light shown on that. Back to this, I want to get back to this hopeful narrative. I really um, keep thinking your, your words, Larry, uh, keep resounding in my mind about how in the wake of the attacks, we would have done anything for this country. Would you like to say more about that? Do you think that there is any way we can, you know, I, I just can't help but keep bringing it back to where we are now. And uh, you think we can pull it together in the, in the pandemic? Uh, sure. yeah. What would have to happen? Well, I think people should look at the facts. You know, we're in a really difficult time because social media is so strong. And I regret to say that when I'm, when I'm talking to people, um, they say crazy things. It's like, I, I read this 
on the internet as if that means, you know, it's true. And I write a column for the Irish Echo. And anytime I write about politics or I write about uh, anything of that nature, I have to check every fact because it's just so important. And my editors then check everything I write. But there's so much garbage information out there that people are believing that getting beyond that is, is one of the things we have to do. And that's a huge battle. You know, Facebook won't take responsibility for what's on there, you know, for, for good reasons sometimes. They don't want to get in the way of people's opinions. But there is a breakdown in in the moral trust in the country um, that's gonna be hard to overcome, but you try to overcome it by telling the truth as best you can. And in the case of Rockaway Blue, what I was trying to do is to see what happens to people, not during the actual day, but, but three years later when things have settled in a bit and the, the worst part of the grief is over, the, the cold steel of the, brief is, of the grief is over, but you've time to think back a bit and putting this character, Jimmy Murphy, who all of a sudden finds out that his son was actually in the tower, North Tower 30 minutes before the crash and his family is finally coming to terms with this, but he has to make the decision, should I find out what he was doing there? Because it may not be good. And Brian wasn't always a morally clear person. And if he finds out something bad about him, uh, his wife will revert back into the depressive state she was in. And of course, it the same thing for him. Uh, so, uh, as a, as a writer, as an artist, what I was trying to do is get into the heads of people to see what happens to people when a huge cataclysmic thing like 9-11 happens, but then what happens to them afterwards when they have time to think back and can their lives get healed? And I'm an optimist about that. I think lives can get healed because you've seen it down through humanity that people pick themselves up and go on because as Beckett says, what choice we have but to go on. So that's, that's what I was trying to do with the book. Thank you so much. It's, it's, I'm, I love how you keep anticipating questions. I was gonna ask about why you chose to set the novel you know, three years after the events and how you think memory affects uh, the larger society's perception of 9-11, just as you know, the characters in Rockaway Blue have their memories of that day uh, affect how they perceive it and why it's important to remember and how the fact that we all remember so differently plays into the collective narrative as well. We also remember differently ourselves uh... Right before 9-11, I wrote a, a, 
a solo album and recorded it. And I, a lot of it was autobiographical. And uh, I wrote a song about my parents called Life's Like That, Isn't It? And how they met and my memories of their romance when they were young people. Um, my father was a merchant marine, so he used to go away for six months at a time. And there would be this preparation when he was coming back. And all of a sudden my mother would kind of desert us as children because she was a wife again. And uh, I wrote about that in 2000 while the two of them were still alive. And uh, my mother died soon after and my father died a couple of years after that. So it was around that, that period. And sometimes I hear that particular song now and I, I see it differently now than I did when I wrote it. And, you know, that's what memory does. Memory puts a gauze over things uh, with, with time. So it's important to, to remember that. So even within my own self, artistic self, I see things differently than I did 20 years ago. And I probably see 9-11 differently too than I did at the time. Yeah, you just reminded me of a line from a, uh, I read a piece in the Atlantic just the other day about um, a 9-11 story and, and the writer says, we keep inventing and reinventing the dead. And I don't know what it is. I think it's just human nature. It's, it's the nature of trauma and memory and um, the passage of time. Yeah. I have a question um, for Jessica, because one, one of the things I think is that uh, with the two, 3,000 people, whatever the figure was now, uh, 2,700 down at the towers, I feel that almost like when their spirits left, on that day, New York became a different place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, big cities go on, new people come in, new spirits come in, but I miss the old New York before 9-11 because it changed ineff ineffably on that day. So I I'd be interested from uh, Jessica's point of view, what, what she thinks of that. Such an interesting question and, and the image that I have of, of the, the departure. Um, is really powerful. This is probably not the more linear answer that you're looking for, but um, this is honestly what I'm thinking about. Um, that the, the gauze of memory and the reinvention of the dead, I think that happens over and over, um, has something to do with the nature of time. Um, and I've been actually writing a lot about grief, collective grief, trauma, I, I'm a book collaborator as well as um, a, a writer of my own work and almost all of my uh, book projects right now have to do with grief and trauma. Um, so somehow I've put that out into the universe. <laughs> um, but I'm also, um, I'm also um, doing journalism in this area and I'm, I'm working on a piece right now that um, is about anniversaries and about how we um, approach anniversaries and how grief is cyclical and I also um, wrote a piece recently um, inspired by the work of, um, it's called, the book is, has a great title. It's called The Terrible Unlikelihood of Our Being Here. And it's uh, Susanna Paola Antonetta. And um, she writes about uh, loss and 
physics and the, the, the actual nature of relative time. And so I, I wrote a piece sort of talking with her about um, the folding of time and that perhaps pandemic time or crisis time, as I mentioned earlier, right, that we're actually experiencing time more as it actually is in the world rather than the way that we perceive it as a, as a sort of straight line of linear reality. And so where this overlaps with the spirits leaving on that day, the people who departed that day, when time, if time is a folding in on itself sort of thing, a plastic, you know, more um, chewing gum kind of <laughs> entity, then it means that our our past and our present can come together. And it means that we can actually have different encounters with the people after they're gone, um, at least theoretically speaking, right? Because um, there's this great physicist and this, I'm so in my, out of my realm right now in the depths of physics that I'm not an expert in, but I find it fascinating where this is notion of all of the nows as a series of Polaroid shots that are all laid out on a table. And so if all of the nows are coexistent on the table, then you could pick one up from over here and pick another one up from over there. And maybe your grandmother's in one and maybe it's your parents meeting again, Larry, in another, you know, and and we can bring these things close to us. Right. We can we can we can look in the look at the world with that level of vast perception, um, not the linear. I miss New York, too that you're looking for, um, but I think it's an ever-changing thing. I mean, I miss the New York of, of you know, 1931 that I researched deeply for my first book, My River Chronicles, um, that was all about the rise and fall of respect for craftsmanship and hands-on work. So I never lived there, but I immersed myself in that sea of reality at the time. And so I miss that New York too, where there were finger piers all along the shoreline of the Western side of Manhattan, you know, accounting to, I think the number is, 76 miles of working waterfront with those finger piers, if you traced, you know, all of the geography there. And so instead, to, to go back to what you had mentioned earlier, Jane, about the infrastructure, really, we were confronted, the, the past and, and present were, were uh, right up against each other on September 11th, when life or death decisions and life or death actions um, were affected by that lack of the infrastructure. So in a very real way, there is a woman, I was not able to get further on her story than a certain point and then it hit a, a, a brick wall. But I believe I actually have a, a, a photograph that may include her and it does not look, that, look like she survived. And she had in a panic jumped from the seawall which is erected with a, it's hard to describe um, just by audio, but it's basically, it's, it's an ornamental railing. It's not just ornamental because it's meant to keep people off the river. So it actually curves towards you if you're standing on the shore. So this woman had to climb over this railing and she jumped down to the steel deck of a fireboat because there was no ladder. There was no, you know, no, there was no concept that big boats would come up alongside and individual people would, uh, would try to get on, right? And so, and and she suffered what is what was very likely a, a fatal injury, head injury on that on that boat. And so, there's a juxtaposition of before and after, right? Um, of of who we once were as a as a working waterfront community, uh, and 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 who we are now. We're so much of the very alive waterfront that is still 
you know, some dock worker had their hands on everything that anybody had in their lives back then, right? Crates and barrels and things like that. Now it all comes offloaded in a, in a container, like a Lego block, right? But all these things actually, you know, found their way across the seas. And I'm, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit here, but another collision moment that happened on September 11th, 12th, um, and so on, was that we actually returned to the working harbor of the past because everything was offloaded by hand. So it was like a bucket brigade of like, okay, we need water on the site. And so boats would deliver water and hand to hand, you know, make a pile. Oh, we need, you know, food. Okay, hand to hand, people would deliver it. So it was break bulk cargo, come back to New York shores, which I found really moving. I completely agree. Uh, thank you so much for telling us that story. And I don't know, I think we've gotten to quantum physics. We may need to stop. <laughs> Is this a good time to stop? Uh, you know, I, I feel we've also hit a kind of a hopeful point because, you know, what we can do is we can talk to one another and we can connect over our common experience and um, compare memories and read great books. And uh, there's a lot of hope there, a lot of opportunity for learning. Uh, it has been so good to talk to you both. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I, I agree with you. I think stories are absolutely the only thing that can save us. I really do. Yeah, and trying to tell the truth. Yes. Amen. That was Jane Bunker interviewing Cornell authors Jessica DeLong and Larry Kerwin. If you'd like to purchase their books with a discount, please visit our website at cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promo code 09POD to save 30% off. If you live in the UK, visit combinedacademic.co.uk and use the promo code CSAnnounce. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.